One of the things about AI and robotics is that we were always told what you're doing will be very impactful in 500 years. So, you know, you guys are like Galileo. That's what they tell the graduates at MIT. So it's very empowering to hear that. But, you know, when switching to biology and actually working on disease-related systems, I mean, it it's hard to overestimate the potential impact even in the shorter term. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohit, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of After Office Hours. Today we had a great conversation with Dr. Bruce Donald. Yeah, Dr. Donald is the James B. Duke Professor of Computer Science and a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at Duke University Medical Center. Yeah, our conversation, I think, encompasses a lot of, and kind of represents a lot of the work that, that Dr. Donald does, and that it was very interdisciplinary. We went from talking about robotics to biochemistry to computer science and mathematics, and all back again. So I thought it was really interesting to hear about his take on all of those different fields and, and the interplay between all of them as well. Yeah, I mean, he has a pretty unique story. He went from being a roboticist at MIT to kind of being inspired to take on structural biology research. And it's interesting to see how he used that knowledge that he, you know, he had as basically designing robots to, to applying to drug discovery. Absolutely. Dr. Donald was a professor of mine, actually. I took one of his courses and really enjoyed that. So it was really nice to sit down with him and, and have a longer conversation here. So I hope you guys enjoy. Dr. Donald, it's a pleasure to be able to speak with you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. I just wanted to start out with a pretty simple question. What do you see as the most beautiful concept in biology? It might not be such a simple question, but... <laughs> a simply worded, but not a simple question. <laughs> this is a great question. So I think it has to do with molecular recognition, right? How do molecules recognize the things they should bind to and the things they shouldn't. And in a way we have these very simple models that are sort of predictive, but we still don't completely understand it. Uh, so I'd like to go back to what Richard Feynman said. He used to say, if I can't build it, I don't understand it, right? So I think that one of the great things that engineering brought to biology is the fact that you can design these molecules and potentially even larger things like cells. And that's a very stringent test of your understanding and your model's understanding of the systems. So I think that by being able to build new interactions and understand them, we can advance the models to some extent. So I think it's, I mean, I wouldn't say we're following necessarily in Feynman's footsteps, but we're doing more than observing and coming up with a theory that matches the data. We're testing it by building new things, the we, the field that is. And uh, so this seems like an enormous challenge. But that having been said, there's another way to answer your question, which is I think there are huge areas of biology that are, I wouldn't say poorly understood because that would insult all the people working in them, but are 
where there are enormous challenges to how to understand that. So even if we understand something now about molecular biology, I don't think we have as good an understanding of the immune system, right? This is a frontier, the brain, of course. Uh, I mean, this is an enormous challenge. How does this actually work? Um, so they're at a systems level, there are things that are really, really hard to understand. Is it over, is it ever overwhelming to you how much we don't understand, for example, with biology, right? I mean, the fraction of pathways or interactions that we actually fully can comprehend or understand with current research is so limited, right? Does that ever overwhelm you? I think it, yes, it is absolutely overwhelming. And especially if you're trying to actually test things. So my Experimentalists in my lab always have a saying, which is nature will always humble you. So when we have, you know, the challenges that we have, often there's a mathematical challenge followed by a computer science challenge, followed by a software engineering challenge, followed by in vitro experiments on purified components, followed by experiments on cells, and eventually our collaborators do experiments on animals. And each of these stages is a really a model for the next thing. So you can sort of think you're making progress. But in some sense, a lot of times we have to go back to first principles or back to the drawing board. And when it's, you need a better algorithm or there needs to be new math developed. I mean, in a way, we like to joke that provides job security because we're trained to do that. But on the other hand, it's, it's almost always doable, right? I mean, it might take five years or 10 years, but it's the phrase that people use uh, sometimes when they describe a big experimental project, when they needed a new algorithm or analysis, they say it's, it's mere computer science. Not that it's trivial, but it's, it's actually something where it's, it's, you can make measurable progress unless you're running it up against intractability or uncomputability barriers. But all this can work great in silico and then nature will humble you. There'll be some pathway you didn't think of, some interaction you didn't think of, some mechanism you didn't know. Um, and I actually think it really relates to the sort of AI point of view as it broadly construed. So it used to be in sort of the 70s and 80s that AI was the part of computer science that studied the world, whereas the rest of computer science studied computers. So it looked outward in some sense. Now this has changed, of course, but there's a, in the field of nonlinear planning, there's a problem called the frame problem. Uh, so the idea is I want to, go across campus, across from my building to biochemistry department, and there's a road there called Research Drive, as you know, and I wanna know if it's safe to cross, right? So you might think, well, we'll build some reactive system and look at cameras and see if there's a truck or a bus coming. Um, but if you wanna think of this from a logical perspective, what you would do, at least in those days, is you would build a theorem proven system and you try to prove that there was no truck that was going to hit you or bus or something else. Um, so this is very difficult because you have to quantify all over all possible vehicles. What about an alien spacecraft? What about a F-14 fighter? What about a Sherman tank? Um, what about a reconditioned tank from World War I? I mean, is it going to roll down research drive? Unlikely, but in some sense, you have to prove that doesn't happen. So the frame problem was a way around this. The frame problem sort of said, well, we're modeling these things and other things we don't model just don't come into the picture. So unmodeled things sort of stay static. Um, and this causes all sorts of problems, but also is a great affordance in the sort of, you know, her brand universe of logical statements, as we say. Um, so I think there's something similar when we do biology or computational biology is that you're assuming certain things don't change or don't enter into things. Um, and 
I think that once you acknowledge that this is an AI problem, uh, it actually opens up sort of a, a universe of possibilities that are kind of quantitative. I guess he started with biology and here we are talking about AI, which I, I think kind of encompasses a lot of the work that you do. And I feel like there are very few people out there who would hear the word biology and initially jump to AI. Your career right, started not necessarily in biology or AI. Can you tell us a bit more about how you kind of progressed through your career and how your interests kind of evolved into these various fields? Sure. Uh, I, I, with the caveat that I'm not sure I would advise anyone to take this path as a route to success. It's probably circuitous. And um, I think the other caveat I would give is that, you know, there are a lot of coincidences that happened and random acts and random chances that cause certain things to happen. I mean, it's sort of like our existence on this planet. There are all these contingent things, you know, if our parents hadn't met in a certain place, you know, if our grandparents hadn't been on the same ship from somewhere and met while immigrating, like my grandparents did, I mean, it, it would have been unlikely. So uh, uh, we have to be careful not to have the ex post facto justification of, of this. Um, but I think briefly to start when I was, you know, in high school, I was interested in computers. We had small computers and started using them. Um, and I was always fascinated by them. And, you know, there was a place where you could go to use them. And then um, when I was 15, my parents moved, well, I moved my parents to outside of Boston. And, you know, I was looking for something to do in the summer. So I took, I found this course I could take. It's called the MIT High School Student Studies Program, run by MIT students, but you could take this course run by students. And quite sophisticated. I took a bunch of classes there. So you could, you know, program a big mainframe or you could use logo in the AI lab and make turtles go around. And it, it was great. Well, what happened was that my high school I was about to go to hadn't even gone to yet. Those kids were taking it too. So those computer guys. And so I became friends with them and did that kind of thing. But um, I, you know, I had no formal training I'd taken math and science classes and that, and I didn't really see really what to, you know, there was no natural progression. There's no software industry or anything. Um, and so I sort of did that stuff, but then I kind of had other interests. So I was also interested in lots of other things. And I was very interested in languages. I guess that might relate to programming languages. I think it does, but it's a minority opinion. Um, so I'd taken a few languages before, but I got very interested in Russian, which was a very esoteric language at the time, and took courses there. And when I was between junior and senior year, I traveled around former Soviet Union for summer, very interesting. And then uh, I took, senior year I ran out of classes and I took Russian classes at Harvard as a, what's called a special student. Um, uh, that's a non-degree program, but it was a nice thing, thing to do. And then commuted back to the high school. And this is also while you were a high schooler. This well a high schooler, yeah. But I, wow. I, I liked okay. doing computer things and I had jobs doing that. So for example, I worked, I think, but after senior year, I worked in a place called a computer store. You can look these up. So the computer store sold the MITS Altair 8800, uh, which was based on the Intel 8080 chip, one of the first microprocessors. 
and it was a kit actually. I mean, you could accept that a lot of people wanted them assembled. So we would assemble them, but there's almost no software. Um, in fact, the only software that came out, which was like almost that summer was Microsoft Basic written by Bill Gates and um, Paul Allen. And uh, you know, it ran on this thing, you had an audio cassette recorder and there was a CRT and things like that. So at, at that time, people like, I'll say us, you, the interviewers and me were a bit more rare. So you could, you could walk into a laboratory or a place that needed people and you could sit down at a terminal, you know, at the terminals at the time and make it do something. And they would be very excited about that. So I had a job there, not really building them. I kind of moved into software pretty quickly, but I built, you know, compilers and utilities and made that kind of thing work. And it was kind of interesting. So I was interested in that. I thought I wanted to do that in college. Um, but I, uh, when I got to college, I did take some courses. I took one, you know, I'd taken math and science. So I took one multivariate calculus class. I took one physics class. And later I took one computer science class. It was actually an AI class taught by Wendy Leonard. Um, but I wasn't really engaged, probably by lack of discipline, by the math or CS curriculum. So I just majored in Russian. And it turned out since I had the language classes, the requirements were very low. Like basically no one had had Russian. So they, three years of language and one year of seminars, but I had all the, I had all the language classes. So I was excused from those and then had time to do other things. I still have to do the same number of credits, but just not in the that department. I did a thesis and that kind of thing. Um, so it was, um, you know, I was always kind of connected to it. And in that AI class, which I, you know, they use Lisp and I enjoyed it. Um, but even that, I mean, what she announced in the beginning is that there would be a random poetry contest. That was the last assignment. And the person with the best poem would be excused from the final and get to name their grade on the, in the class. So I said, okay, this is for me. I don't really like taking tests very much. <laughs> and most of the people taking the class were dyed in the wood technologists. And I was you know, a literature major. So I was like, well, I'm gonna look to see what's never been done before. Cause like an academic new is better than good. And I found that no one had written a really long poem. People had written really clever haikus and even some sonnets and things like that. And so I decided, well, you know, it's pretty easy to write a long poem. So I wrote this program that had pretty, I was kind of interested in linguistics, had a pretty good syntax and a big vocabulary, but it, you know, it made no sense, but it was very long. So I wrote a hundred thousand line poem called the great epic poem and handed in this enormous thing. And Wendy was, Professor Leonard was charmed by it. So I, you know, never really studied enough to actually pass the exam. I just got an A from writing a very long machine-generated poem. That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, could, could you explain a bit more about, you mentioned you have an unpopular opinion that learning languages and computer languages uh, have some sort of connection. Could you explain a bit more about that? Well, so I have kind of a, an amateur training in linguistics, I mean, maybe kind of undergraduate level. But the people that I studied to the extent I did aren't considered as popular anymore and their views aren't considered as popular. Um, and I also have kind of a journeyman's appreciation for the, what you might call the field of programming language and semantics. Um, so of course you see semantics in CS230 and so forth, but that's the only course where we see functional programming at Duke. This is really different from other universities. So at Cornell and at Carnegie Mellon, functional program is required software course. You have to use 
you know, ML or something, and they teach that, teach that semantics is really important. You know, you learn all sorts of marvelous things that there's a notion of the functions in computer science being continuous. This is called the Scott topology. So it turns out that the, all the computable functions are continuous, but not vice versa. So interesting thing is most undergraduates don't know that because we don't have anyone doing research in programming languages and only one person working in semantics, my good friend, Ben Rossman. Um, whereas other, depart other departments have an enormous collection of these. So I would say one notion of, of popularity has to do with just the rarity of it. I think this view would be less outre at Cornell or Stanford or Carnegie Mellon, but here it's a little bit different. Um, I think that it's complicated to make the direct connection. So for example, I have colleagues who were majored in the humanities and went on to computer science, but often when they were in the humanities, they focused on something that's really quite close to engineering and science. Let me give you an example. So I was very interested in philosophy as well, but I was interested in the existentialist, you know, Sartre, Heidegger, Husserl, and so forth. And I actually thought it was very algorithmic, this whole, you know, in itself and for itself and Dasein and so forth. Um, you know, I always view that nihilation as kind of a background garbage collection process. Again, a minority opinion. But my friends who were actually bona fide philosophy majors who went on computer science, they often were interested in logic and the analytic philosophers. So their heroes would be Bertrand Russell's, so forth. And this is really quite close to computer science. In fact, I would view certain computer science departments, for example, at Berkeley is essentially people close to philosophers. And my academic advisor, Marvin Minsky, was really quite close to philosophy. My thesis advisor was a um, hardcore computer science, Tomas Lozano Perez, but uh, at MIT, you also had an academic advisor. So, I mean, he's really, Marvin was really both a mathematician and a philosopher as well. So I, I think there is a connection there. I mean, how could you not, you know, become decent at a language with all these declensions and conjugations, all this inflection, like uh, like Russian, for example, and not see the connections between the detailed rules. And also, I think that I'm, I'm, I don't really believe directly in the Whorf hypothesis, but I think there's something there. Like when the language has different structures of the past pluperfect and past perfective tense and different future gerundive cases, uh, you know, this seems to me it logically has to influence how you perceive the world. So one simple example. In Russian, the verb to be doesn't exist in the present tense. You can say, I was a professor, or I will be a professor. But you can't, don't really say, I am a professor. You would say, I, and then draw a line and say professor. Now there is, the verb does exist in the infinitive, and there are words like exist, so I existed as professor, I am in the abiding contingency of professorness, but you don't say it in common Russian. Um, it exists in previously in earlier versions of Russian. And interestingly, except for one small sign, diacritical sign called a soft sign, a palatalization, it's the same word as the verb to eat. Never would be okay. mistaken by a never would be mistaken by a Russian or anyone Slavic. Um, sure. But do you, do you still would, speak Russian, by the way? I read it. I don't have much opportunity to speak it. <laughs> sure, and sure. all my Russian friends and postdocs speak English so well. I mean, I sort of try to engage them and speak every now and then, but they rather dryly say things like, "Well, it does seem like you haven't completely forgotten your Russian." 
<laughs> and, so. and it's interesting you mentioned philosophy. Um, do you find that, you know, once you transitioned, your research tran- transitioned more from, you know, robotic motion planning and material science to structural biology, do you find that biology also lends itself well to thinking about these philosophical concepts? I think it can. Um, I mean, it's such a different culture, right? Um, I mean, just the the standard of proof is so different in the natural sciences. I mean, you, I mean, you can't actually prove anything, right? You can, I mean, I mean, that in a good sense, you have a theory that's consistent with previous data, with some exceptions, maybe, and you can only falsify it by new data that contradicts it. Um, of course, in mathematics, even one contradiction blows the theory away, right? I mean, you can't, you can't, you know, one exception is not tolerable, and and furthermore, one can prove things there's deductive reasoning and so forth. So this is a really different way of thinking about things. Um, I do think that there's deeply philosophical points to this, but in in some sense, I think the role of both theory and philosophy in biology are things that are more controlled by gatekeepers than in engineering or computer science. So, you know, if you're at a certain stage, the Nobel stage, you're allowed to philosophize about how the mind works. Look at Francis Crick, you know, turning from molecular biology to how the mind works in some sense. Um, other less successful explorations would be Tim Watson, of course. I mean, he went into some rather dark areas of biology involving eugenics. Um, uh, Roger Penrose, right? I mean, his speculations about the mind and quantum mechanics, I think were a little bit ill-advised, but very interesting, of course. Um, I mean, I don't mean to criticize someone who's won the Nobel Prize and is such a brilliant guy in, in his field, but um, to me, I was like, well, we, we already know quantum mechanics is involved, right? We have one of the few examples of abstraction in biology is actually the term ligand, right? Right. So ligand can be anything from a photon up to a hundred megadalton protein, right? This is sure. very interesting, interesting in some sense. Whereas not many abstract examples, but obviously the interaction of the photon with a uh, photoreceptor, right? Rhodopsin, that has to be quantum mechanical in space. So obviously there's something quantum mechanical going, going on there, but whether or not quantum mechanics is actually influencing the computation of neurons, it seems like a rather bold hypothesis in some sense. So do you think I, that I think this it, different sorry, do you think that this different standard of proof like changes what truth quote unquote means in each field? Do you think there's a different level of truth that you're able to develop in mathematics or philosophy with a formal logical proof than you are in biology where you can like you said, you can't really prove anything? Well, this is a really loaded question, um, but a great question. Um, so good job, Becky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so first, it's easier. But I think they're, I think they're both good standards of proof, and both can benefit from being used together. So the standard in biology is probably similar to the standard in, say, systems research and computer science, experimental systems research, right? I mean, you have to show things empirically and be able to replicate everything. Um, and what really matters is how how does it work. Um, so I think the change would be more is how is theory and complexity in the informal sense valued in these fields. So the anecdote I would tell about this is that suppose you have a talk in the computer science department, um, 
or engineering. And someone comes in and they're presenting theoretical results. And someone says, um, okay, I get it. It seems rather simple though, kind of straightforward now that I get it. It's a big insult to the theorist, right? Whereas to the systems person building a system, someone presents something that would be an immense compliment, right? So no, it's really not that complicated. So thank you. It's supposed to be simple. It's the right thing. So there's a different, you know, ethos there. So I think that, um, you know, both are pretty important. I kind of like end-to-end -end research, but I, I do think it's possible more directly to compare fields that are closer. So I'll pick two fields that really aren't that close now that I learn more about them, but physics and computer science. So by the standards of physics, we have proved that P does not equal NP, right? We're way out beyond six sigma, right? Um, there's massive evidence and mathematical models. I mean, we really, really know, but I'm not claiming it's true. I, I agree with the standards that we use in, in mathematics and computer science, but by other fields, we'd be done. So um, there could be differences even among very rigorous fields to try to think about how things, th things work. So I, I, what I mean is really in biology, there's a, a notion of, um, showing that your model is correct. And in mathematics, there's a notion of showing that your theorem is correct. And it's the word correct means different things in these cases. So um, this these shifts in what you say, both the shift in the mode of thinking between perhaps um, computer science and biology, and also just practically knowledge that you have to gain. Was that, was that shift partially difficult for you to make? Or, you know, what what did that look like, that traversal going from biology, um, from the fields that you were exploring beforehand? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd always been interested in, in using computers for things, I mean, for solve problems. And then it, all, it, it turned out that the language of mathematics and algorithms was usually the lever that I've used to move, the, not the world, but move the machine. Um, and so I, I was kind of interested in applying it in areas where um, there was physics and geometry and, and shape, which is really different from you know, the world of strings and trees and so forth, not that those aren't extremely interesting. Um, so it was kind of natural that my eventual you know, interests would end up more in a field of structural biology that has geometry and physics and so forth and less in the area where it's sequences, which are very, you know, the same thing in computer science, I think. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I would say that the earlier work was kind of practice for looking at these things. So I'd worked in, uh, you know, computer graphics and architectural design. Architecture means buildings, not computers. Um, so there was physics and geometry and thinking about those things. You're probably the first and computer scientist to say the word architecture and really be talking about physical architecture <laughs> yeah it was really an interesting area and of course in, in each area you have to really understand the people that are that are using it so you know back back in those days we had to you know digitize plans by hand i mean by digitizing you know, they're going into the computer you have to measure things out and draw with a stylus and so forth and those are very expensive but um i remember at one point that the plan diagram was too small and more resolution so i was going to go you know Printed out again, but you know the architects have all these tools in their pockets at the time. Now they're all computer use the computer programs, but they had all these special things, and they would just like draw these diagonals and be able to, you know, like Galileo, increase something just by constructions. 
Um, and I said, wow, that's impressive. And they said, we have a few tricks too. So that's, I think, the thing you can learn is that the people actually doing it have a lot of, a lot of tricks. Um, I guess the thing that I found was at the time there was this immense field called sort of geometric algorithms, but it was almost always theoretical. There are a few people doing things with CAD CAM, but it was very difficult to make these things work in practice. So there's an immense gap between theory and practice. And often the people doing theory weren't interested in even implementing their algorithms and the people implementing things couldn't understand the theory. Um, and so I found an advisor or he found me that was sort of similarly worried about this gap and was working in robotics, but really it was geometry. And so that was a, sort of an attempt to make algorithms work in the real world in some sense. So there are all these issues of, you know, uh, precision and and uh, the vulnerability of the algorithms to uh, errors in the data and so forth and uncertainty and of course those are really important things in, in robotics. So I think that um, you know underneath it there are all these AI algorithms and algorithms for dealing with physics and and geometry. And I think that my route to structural biology was influenced by uh, maybe a rather nerdy need for certain systems. So I was interested in robotics and being a computer scientist. This is after graduate school. I was like, well, what about distributed and parallel robotics? We have distributed parallel computers. So how can we, how can we do that? But at the time you needed a lab. So I was given a lab by Cornell and you have to buy or build robots. It's pretty expensive, right? You know, time. Uh, so we built four robots and we do experiments with four, but obviously as a computer scientist, you want this to scale to a thousand, 10,000, a million. How, how would you do that? I mean, it's very hard to build that many. But, and, and at the time, the top labs only had 20 robots. And at, in any experiment, three would break down. And rather than kind of address that, they tried to make that a feature of the experiment. It's even more robust because if the robots break, the experiment works even better. So this was kind of unscientific to me. Um, but I was in, in partly in an engineering school and Cornell had a really good nanofabrication lab, which you might call microelectromechanical systems. And, um, it turned out that I had a colleague there and he had 40 grad students and that was more than the rest of the department combined. And he had a dip in funding. And so for a year the department had to support all the grad students and they really didn't like that. So they passed a special rule limiting to him to 16 graduate students. And he almost left Cornell and he did later, um, but he found a way around it, which was to collaborate, very collaborative guy. So what he'd do is, you know, he'd work with someone say like me, they'd be my grad students, but they could work with him. So he got very interdisciplinary and he could make using a process called SCREAM, single crystal reactive etching and metallization, he could make on a chip, basically these are VLSI processes that have been all repurposed for making mechanical things. He could make a, a chip with resonators or little mirrors. He can make, put a million of these on a chip and they could be used to control you know, TVs or radar, all sorts of interesting things. And he was like, well, these are, you know, would, would you like to work on this? And I was like, yeah, that'd be really interesting. So here was a process that because we could make billions of transistors or we get millions of process, maybe we get millions of at least actuators, not robots. And um, so there's all this process engineering, but particular surface chemistry. So my students at least learn lots of surface chemistry. And uh, 
you know, it's quite dangerous in those labs if you don't know what you're doing. For it's, it's really high tech. There are lots of dangerous chemicals. So they have a chemical called liquid piranha, which is a combination of hydrofluoric acid and, uh, you know, sulfuric acid together. Sounds good. I don't, I don't want to mess with that. <laughs> yeah. So when you went in there, actually, they would, you know, you'd have to be very careful. So we basically started making these arrays that were like little cilia in biology. Like you could have many thousands of these on a chip and control them. You had to distribute a control problem and you could put a part on top. So in manufacturing, the key problem at the time wasn't transfer parts. It was orienting them and singulating them. So getting them to be just one part, you know, nearby not clustered together and getting them in the right orientation in the right spot. So basically an active conveyor belt. So what if you had a conveyor belt with all these cilia so you could orient, spin parts, move them around like, like organisms do. So we came up with algorithms and systems for doing that. And um, basically the, the, the model was a vector field. You have a programmable vector field on your, on your chip. Um, these are pretty expensive to make. I mean, I remember losing some of these chips. I only carried around the old ones that were old and dirty to talks because you had props at the time. And I remember losing some in American Airlines asking me to estimate the value of what I lost. And I talked to my student. He sent me an article from Wall Street Journal saying that developing silicon costs a billion dollars per square inch. And I'd lost six chips. So that was the largest claim ever filed. How, did, it, how did that turn out? Did you recoup your... <laughs> they had a limit of $600 per passenger. But I have an amusing letter where they look at my $6 billion claim and they say it's value and they give me $600. So, um, so later, later on, this is probably after I was at, at Dartmouth, um, I, had, I had some incredible colleagues there and we're like, well, these, these are robots clearly. Like we view this conveyor belt as vector field. So the mathematical problem is how do you program a vector field? So here's an, a question we saw, which is um, you have a part, which is a laminar part. It's any shape, but it's just, it's a polygon of some kind. It can be non-convex. And you're going to put that on the field and you don't know what its orientation is. And you, or its pose. And you want to run a sequence of vector fields. Like they could be indexed by time, such at the end of the process, the part is in a unique orientation. And you would like to do this independent of the shape of the part. So in other words, there's a mapping from the part to unique final orientation. Obviously it doesn't work for symmetric parts. There's a symmetry, but a non-symmetric part. So the, the question is, what is a possibly time varying vector field that will drive this thing to a unique equilibrium that you can compute? Um, so first we came up with time varying fields. Like in other words, you do something for different periods of time. Like for example, you'd squeeze things together. So that's a, and there were two disadvantages. One, you need to clock, you have to, clock to do this and synchronize. The second thing is that these fields were actually discontinuous, right? You might squeeze towards a center line with unit force, so to speak. Um, and a third mathematical complication is that they were discrete. So you had to deal with that somehow. They weren't actually continuous. But so we thought about this again, I think this was a nice interdisciplinary exercise. So at least at the time in computer architecture, what you're always trying to do is get rid of the clock. The clock is a pain. Right, there are all these papers and you can't synchronize clocks, you know, it's impossible, it's uncomputable. So if you can get rid of the clock, it's much better. So I had a very brilliant student at the PhD student at the time and he posed the question, well, is there a universal field? He called it a UFO, universal feeder orienter. So it's a continuous field on say a square and the guarantee is for any, up to symmetry, any part will be driven to unique equilibrium. So can you design this vector field and it's static? 
but you wait some amount of time, put any part on it, it will go to unique orientation. And uh, that you can you also can compute. So we made one. I'll leave it as an exercise for you to figure out what that field looks like. And but we couldn't prove it. So we did lots of simulations, we built it, you know, it works really well, but we didn't have a proof. So at the time, actually, I was looking for jobs because I was out at Stanford. My wife was at Stanford, we wanted jobs in the same place. So I went around and gave talks at lots of CS departments and and engineering departments said, here's this problem, you know, we're working on it for a couple of years. And uh, interestingly, all the theorists were like, oh yeah, that should be easy. We'll get back to you on that. Um, no one got back to me on it. And eventually I solved it with the help of a really brilliant collaborator at Rice and her postdoc. And we published a paper on it. So there's a theorem that you could do this, but here's the interesting thing, a purely architectural question. Can you remove the clock? Like you have to program this like an SRAM, right? It's a complicated thing. But if you get rid of the clock, it's much simpler. You just like load it up and it goes. Works for any part. So architectural question, can I get rid of the clock? What an architect always wants to do. This reduces to a problem in geometric dynamics, right? And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Like you've taken some differential geometry and a little bit of control theory. It doesn't, I would say that it wasn't straightforward to prove the first time, but it's possible to understand this. So this is the connection between things. I always was kind of convinced there's this connection between the discrete and continuous. Anyhow, having worked on this, these sort of micro robots, things got smaller and smaller. And then both the field was trending towards thinking about biology. And I realized that ultimately, if you want to design these tiny nanomachines, proteins and nucleic acids, that's the ultimate toolbox for designing these things. And that seemed like a really exciting place to be. Um, and I knew some surface chemistry, so I thought I could transfer the chemistry over. So it was kind of a progression from really big robots, like my robots at Cornell were huge, like big robot arms and things, down to micro robots, down to nano robots a little bit, you know, and then finally down to proteins and other molecules you could design. So biological is, toolbox. Is that how you conceptualize most sort of biological phenomena, right? As little machines, right? I mean, because there's, there's one side of it where you have computational biology where you're sort of applying algorithms to model biology, but you sort of have like biological computation, which is like just envisioning biological little machines like inside like cells or just proteins or any, any at any scale really. Is that how you think about things sometimes? That's a really interesting question. So, um, I mean, I distinguish the two. I think of biological computation is how can you build, say, computers out of biological elements? So John Reif does that very successfully, and uh, you know, Albi Lebeck and other other folks do that. Um, I have some interest in it, but um, and then there's computational biology, which is trying to sort of model, understand a model biology using computation. I mean, design is a little bit in the middle. Like you want to sort of design, I, in my case, interventions, but they could be things that were useful as sensors or other kinds of uh, devices. So, uh, I mean, design has this kind of privileged position because you could, you're designing something that's unnatural in some sense. So it is a machine, but it might be a machine that's similar to other kinds of things in the body. Like it could be something that prevents an interaction or modulates a shape or changes dynamics. Um, you know, is a drug really a machine? I mean, maybe, maybe not. Um, so I think design is sort of halfway between biological computation and um, computational biology. And, and the line is, is fairly easy to, to blur. So you probably know about CAR-T therapies. This is 
So, you know, a huge problem with this is that, I mean, it's a great, great therapy, but you can set off a, a cytokine storm. You can really hurt the patient sometimes, the inflammatory response. So this is, um, you know, kind of, it's an issue with immunotherapy in general. And it's a great, incredibly promising thing and people have been cured by it, but, you know, there's this danger. So a former student of mine, so he did this work in a new lab after getting his PhD, Pablo Gainza, who's at EPFL in Switzerland. And um, he worked on a very interesting project where he made a uh, dimeric CAR-T effector. So basically it's this dimer and it, in order to dimerize, it needs to have a small molecule at the protein-protein interface. And he designed all this. So you start out with biological components, protein-protein interface, but it has to be the small molecule that you titrate in. So you give the patient the CAR-T therapy and you give them the small molecule, which lets the, this thing dimerize. But if you um, notice an inflammatory response, then you can either antagonize that molecule or just titrate it out because it's degraded. And then, the, then your therapy is instantly deactivated. Right. You could also do it the other way. You could have uh, a molecule which antagonizes the interface. He didn't work on this as directly, but it's something I've worked on. So you can, I mean, not in this system, but in other cancer systems, so you could have a molecule that disrupts the protein interface. Then you have delivery and timing issues and so forth. But this is an interesting case of kind of a molecular machine in some sense. It's a very mechanistic explanation. Um, and I think that these things are coming together. I mean, in, you know, in cell sorting, you have these combination of chromophores when you're trying to figure out what's happening in a, a cell population. And you might have different readouts where you're actually computing, you know, ands and ors of different uh, kind of fluorophores. I mean, John Reif and others work on this. So I think there is a, certainly there's a, a gate and logic level of computation going on for sure. Um, but to build a full-fledged biological computer is kind of a, a dream in a different, kind of a different part of Duke from where I Set, but very interesting. So I think you could tell this story of going from big things like robots that deal with physics and geometry down to medium-sized things to smaller things. But I think that, in fact, you know, the lure of biology and chemistry is also there too. I mean, one of the things about AI and robotics is that we were always told what you're doing will be very impactful in 500 years. So, you know, you guys are like Galileo. That's what they say the graduates at MIT. So it's very empowering to hear that. But, you know, when switching to biology and actually working on disease-related systems, I mean, it, it's hard to overestimate the potential impact even in the shorter term than that. We're talking about trying to get things in clinical trials in, in years. And that, that's very attractive for someone who likes to see something happening. So I think that there are a lot of unsolved problems there. I think a big difference between these is that in traditional computational biology, a lot of the biologists doing sequence-based stuff were rather um, distant in their training from mathematics, physics, and computer science. Whereas in structural biology, a lot of these folks are physicists or mathematicians or even engineers, and they're actually quite sophisticated about coding and models and physics. Uh, they might not be computer scientists or software engineers, but they've tried all the straightforward things already. So you have to have a 
really clever idea that outcompetes the things that a smart pe person with a, you know, part pe person with a PhD and a lot of science experience physicist can do. Um, so it's really at a different level. I see that going into sequence-based biology in the 90s was a really different experience than going into um, structural biology where they, they are really quite sophisticated. I mean, writing code and using computers and doing complicated things. So it's a different enterprise. And you, and you mentioned sort of the prospect of therapeutic translation, right? Of, of having an impact. The company that you uh, founded, 1063 Therapeutics, whose mission is essentially to drug the undruggable, is what, you know, what was the motivation behind that? And what does your day-to-day -day look like as the chief scientific officer? Right, um, great, great question. Um, so first, just to, to back up, I, you know, I think we, we really, lab is really interested in translation to the clinic, although we, we don't do that. We have a lot of clinical collaborators. Um, so we were involved, for example, in uh, helping to design antibodies with the Vaccine Research Center, and those things are in clinical trials. So that's you know really great for us and for the students. Those look pretty successful. There have been successful phase one, phase one B trials reported already. So um, you know we really hope those can have it have an impact. I think that the um, well about about the company. So the um, the company was started by uh, me and my students. Um, so everyone was a former student or a former postdoc, or some were actually still in the lab at the time. And uh, the initial name of the company was Gavilan Biodesign. So the, we have software in the lab, which goes by the name Osprey. So open source protein redesign for you. And Gavilan is more or less the Spanish translation of Osprey. So that's how that name came about. And that was a nice name for some time. Um, and you know, we spun it out of Duke. And I think the motivations were, I mean, the students were very entrepreneurial and interested in both doing something in the tech space and a drug design space. Um, and I was interested too. But from my point of view, there are a lot of things that are, that's appeared to me to be easy to do in the industry space, but difficult in university space. Like, I mean, a lot of the hardcore software development, it, it doesn't necessarily fit into a PhD thesis, both in terms of size and in terms of contact. Not that you can't do it, but you have to find just the right person. And then you're hiring staff, and you know there's a, you know they're less protected from funding dips and things like that. Um, and a lot of this kind of translational engineering activities, I thought would be better to develop in the industry space. I mean, basically every time I talk about my work, at, you know with you know, family and friends are like, well, why isn't this used by pharma? And not that we haven't tried, but big pharma is very conservative until you really have um, a breakthrough technology or a breakthrough molecule. So startups seem like a good source. So it seemed like a way both to commercialize the technology and take it to the next level, and also to you know, look at some drug targets that were really difficult to do in the laboratory context and take them, take them through. Um, and this is really driven by, you know, some really, really great students who started this. So we spun this out of Duke and, uh, they called up, you know, we applied to incubators at first. These are like Y Combinator, but they're also in, so there's one called IndieBio, we might've heard of. And IndieBio is, uh, you know, they had his sort of Zoom interview with us and we pitched our work, which is really about resistance at the time. And they were like, We'll get back to you. And then they, the next day they said, okay, 
so they have two classes every year, like spring and, and fall. And they said, we want you to come and we'll fund you, but you have to come now. We were hoping for the fall. You have to come now because there are people in the space and you have to be there instantly. So we want you out when here was next this? week. This was probably in 2019 in the spring. Okay. Okay. So you have to come like instantly. So I was like, how would we do that? You know, I'm teaching, but all the other founders were like, yeah, we can do that. No problem. Yeah. And, and these are, these are people with families. I mean, they didn't at the time have kids, but they had, you know, wives and lives here and they just picked up and moved out to San Francisco for four months and learned a lot. Um, and at the end of that, we got funding, but we also got a very interesting letter from Google and Merck. So the lawyers there, very big, powerful lawyers sent a letter saying, we noticed your company. We've been incorporated so forth. We have a company, and we're funding a startup, Google and Merck, called Galvani Bioelectronics. So kind of a transposition. that it Working in basically TMS, brain stimulation, I think. And we think the names are too close. Implication, and we have lots of money, so you really should change your name. So it changed its name. Uh, at, that, at that point, but the company feels the name is better. Uh, so basically, it's a VC-backed company at this point, and it seems that the platform, so a new platform which is based on Osprey has been developed, but also extends it a lot. But it seems that the real thing that the investors and the community and the market want are new drugs for really hard things. And so the you know targets are difficult cancer targets for say pancreatic cancer and so forth, um, and I I can't say much more about it. But there's it's an extension of our work in trying to basically search a vast chemical space and design small molecules that can uh, modulate or interrupt these cancers uh, and basically form as you know new new inhibitors and be able to generate these with a small staff. I mean, we have maybe 15 people now, but that's much less than small staff and a few number of experiments. So it's similar to the vision of the lab that you can design drugs on the computer and then test them quickly and get them into uh, clinical trials and, and the market. Um, and so for the progress, it's really good. So I've actually, um, I was CSO for a while and founder. Um, at the company's progressed quite a bit and gone into a lot of business development. So actually my, my role as of a few months ago was actually changed I'm now chair of the scientific advisory board and also founder. I go to all the meetings. So I'm, I'm uh, uh, somewhat less in, involved in some of the day-to-day -day things and more involved in the strategy and, and vision parts. Um, but yeah, the CEO and CTO are uh, uh, former students from the lab. Uh, Mark, That's awesome. Mark, Mark Hallen, who was after the lab, he was an assistant professor at University of Chicago and Marcel Frankel, who was a PhD, also a PhD student before joining the, joining the company. So it's exciting to see things translated there. And it's, it's different from the work in the lab, both in terms of targets and the, you know, the methodology has been extended in some sense. Um, and there are a lot, of, a lot of exciting things happening. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. It should be a good showcase for Duke technology because even, even though it, the platform has been extended a lot, it builds on, you know, 15 years of development here at Duke, which has been licensed to the company. So one from Duke is still open source. So you mentioned Osprey a few times, um, open source protein redesign for you, it, which is an open source uh, software suite. Can you like elaborate a bit on what you think the role of open source platforms is currently and, and where that's going um, in the future? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I see it. So it's part of my core values that, you know, science should be open source, especially if you've taken NIH money. I mean, you know, we are funded, I mean, not knock wood, we'll continue to be funded, but the largesse of NIH funds our entire operation at Duke. And uh, we're, we're required to be open source because I promised it in the grants, but it's not, I didn't have to make that promise, but it, it helps a lot. So I think that even people who have a different philosophy are like, well, I might do it a different way, but at least it's open source. I can see it and build on it. We can reproduce it. Um, so I'll first speak to the, from the point of view of a lab, someone considering doing this, such as you all who'll be starting your own lab someday, which is, it gave me a tremendous advantage. I mean, I didn't do a postdoc or a PhD in structural biology or biochemistry, but I said, I have these ideas and we have these results and it's all open source. And people really like that because at the time, everyone took an IP position with respect to their software. And they, everyone thought their software would be a billion dollar thing and, and no one could reproduce anything. Um, now, I like the open source model because you're free to, our stuff is distributed under GPL2. You can distribute it, you can modify it, you can change it, you can use it for anything. And, and your code, your contributions have to be open source as well. I think that's a really great model for this. Uh, other people are thinking about this. There's a, you know, uh, if you will, competing, I think it was a friendly competition program, which is kind of community software. It's kind of a walled garden. They have very strict rules. So you can, you can get it for free in academia and you can modify it, but you can't redistribute your code to anyone or their code. And you can contribute it back to their platform, uh, but they moderate it. They don't take everything. And, um, and when it's in their platform, then they sell that to industry, um, which is you know different kind of thing. And there are restrictions. There are people who've done some good work and haven't been allowed to you know, contribute things. Um, so they have a software engineering team. So I think community software is an alternative model. I really like the open source model. I mean, in some sense with community software, you have to do all this community building. You have to have conferences and convince people to do it. Why should they join your community? You know, open source, of course, we have TensorFlow, we have Apache, we have Unix. I mean, there are lots of examples of open source changing the world. And um, I think that our model is, I don't have anything against a huge institute or a huge lab, but that's a very different operation. We're pretty small. Like one of the larger labs in CS, one of the smaller ones in biochemistry. That's kind of an interesting comparison. But I think the question is a lot, there are a lot of labs of similar sizes and what can, what can you do with such a lab? We're not all gonna have 160 person labs. So what can you do both in terms of technology and in terms of using technology for drug design? So you wanna have something that kind of targets the range of experiments and development you can do in those. And I think open source is perfect for that. Uh, so it's always helped me. And I found that it's great for reaching out to collaborators. Um, so I think software that's for research should be open source and should be free. I have no problem with commercial software developed in a company, right? So we, we do that too. That's a different different thing from academic research. That's great. And switching gears a little bit, you know, amidst all these hats that you have, you also play mandolin in your band, Tasty Possum. You know, what's behind that? What inspired that name? And have you, you know, played mandolin all your life? Is it something that you grew up doing or? That's a that's a nice question. Um, so the name is I'd, uh, I mean, 
I played a lot of different kinds of music. I mean, I wouldn't say it's diverse, but a bunch of different kinds. Um, so I played music in, you know, it's kind of starting in high school and in college. Um, I played a lot of rock um, back in, when I lived in New York. And I was actually in a band in New York that was all computer scientists. Everyone had a PhD. No That's trouble. So awesome. No trouble remembering the arrangements. I'll tell you that. Having played in a lot of different bands, and also they're very. We wrote like sixty original songs. So these are all on the website if you want to hear them. But some relate to computer science even. But um, but what I learned That's is awesome. that people have have the training of engineers, computer scientists. Not really hard to remember the arrangements, and they're very very creative. They're very good connection between mathematics and music, as you know, like the string quartets at MIT are some of the best ones in, in the college setting. So I, I like doing that. There's a lot of setup for playing rock and also, you know, can be hard on your hearing. Uh, and so I kind of gravitated it when we had kids, couldn't play as loudly when they were little and we moved down here. So there's, a, you know, a, an enormous explosion of music here. I mean, I lived in the Northeast, you know, if you even in a big city, you'd be lucky to know one banjo player or one fiddle player if you're playing kind of roots music. Our, our arrangement is kind of bluegrass instruments, but it's kind of more Americana, about half bluegrass, one quarter. Um, but here, you know, everyone plays music and we instantly almost hooked up with, you know, fiddle players, bass players, and so forth. And uh, you know, started playing together about maybe 10 years ago. Um, most of them are ringers, like they're people, I mean, like all people in Raleigh-Durham area, some of them have, you know, PhDs in various areas, but they are working three jobs as a musician, like Raleigh Symphony, or, you know, Durham Symphony, North Carolina Symphony, and all these other things. Um, but they, a few of them wanted to learn to play in a more improvisatory style or play more bluegrass music. And that's what I did, although I didn't have the classical training they did. Uh, so what's happened the last 10 years is they've really, really improved and become not only fine musicians in the original area, but really great musicians in the in this new area, whereas I've stayed about the same, but they still tolerate me. Um, so we played out a fair bit in the past, but not during the pandemic, and maybe we will in the future. So, um, but yeah, it's been nice to nice to play music here, and it's, it's a, a good group. Um, I still wish miss playing electric guitar, but maybe someday in the future. So I've always always done that as another another uh, activity. That's awesome. I want to ask uh, one more technical question before we start to wrap up your class this past semester. Um, and it was made up from a pretty diverse group uh, from like CS students to bio students to students to maybe like some statistics, bioinformatics type people. Um, and a lot of the discussion uh, started and a lot of the conversation began with a sort of translation of terms um, from computer scientists would speak to a uh, language that a biologist uh, would understand. Do you think this is a feature in the sense that it forces you to deeply understand a topic um, to kind of translate it into terms that someone from a completely different field would understand? Or do you think it's a flaw and simply uh, something you, a hurdle you have to get over when you're working in interdisciplinary? It's a great question. Um, so I think there are two ways to approach this. One is you can kind of look up what do, what does someone think are important problems? Like this is kind of the, you know, read the last paragraph of all the conference papers and see what they say are open problems. Now these aren't, this isn't a good way, I don't think, but then you don't even have to interact with biologists, right? You just read the, I'm gonna work on this. 
And then when you have something, you publish it, you kind of throw it over the transom to the biologists, hope they'll use it. Maybe you have to make your code available. And maybe they will, right? Um, what I found is that if you can collaborate with biologists and chemists and have some data in your paper, it kind of increases the interest and impact, right? To actually show it works. And then of course, these folks are very busy and have their own agenda. So if it matches, it's perfect, right? Um, and those are the collaborators you work with for the rest of your life, but often you have to do the experiments yourself. So this is very daunting maybe to someone trained in a, you know, modern computer science department where you, you know, probably don't even know how to reboot the server. And maybe you all do, but it's, you know, probably locked up and complicated and so forth. And I, except that, you know, it, I've always kind of been interested in that. It's, you know, I think that it's a feature in the following sense. Um, you know, when you're talking to the theorist, you can you can interest them by stressing the experimental relevance of your work. And when you're talking to the experimentalist, you can interest them by talking about the theoretical beauty of your work, right? That's kind of a, a way to get out of the microscope a little bit because it's very hard to kind of be as innovative as the best theorist or as clever as the best experimentalist, but being in the middle, you can kind of be a, a bridge person in some sense. But that having been said, I think almost everyone has sort of a heavy foot. So you'll probably be, you know, state-of-the-art computer science and best practices, chemistry or vice versa, right? Probably won't be both. Um, that's, that's a difficult, difficult thing to do. Um, but I see it as what my advisor, why I was going back to, would have called a form of inoculation. So he used to teach an undergraduate robotics class at Cornell. And it wasn't the class I would have taught, which would have focused on the things I'm interested in, like geometry and physics. He taught all aspects like control theory and kinematic design, all this important stuff if you want to actually do robotics. Um, and every time he taught control theory, of course, there were all these control theorists in the audience. And they would say, oh, can you handle the overdamp case? Can you do all this crazy stuff? And he would say, I'm not a control theorist. I will brook no more interruptions from the control theorists on advanced topics. The point of this class is to inoculate you. So when you see that math, you don't run away and not read the paper. So I want everyone to I see- I love that, inoculate you. <laughs> yeah, so an example for me would be that, you know, when we do a lot of NMR in my lab and I actually wanted to really understand it. So I had several NMR spin, what we call spin gymnasts in my lab previously. And you know they're physicists. Uh, I've won physicists now, but in the past several, and they were like, "I'm going to teach you guys the most basic experiment, and it, I'll spend two weeks and give you lectures." So that took eight months of lectures every day, and they used this quantum mechanical notation that, at the time, I found very alien. Like I knew linear algebra and a bunch of math, but this whole Brown Ket notation, direct, so-called direct notation, I found this very confusing at the time, even though I think of myself as being sophisticated mathematically. And it took me actually quite a while, like I didn't get it at the time to realize what they're doing and what the strengths and weaknesses of it are. But there are a bunch of things whereas if you are just thrown into them, you might have an immune response to them, like Dirac notation, the Bronkett notation, spherical harmonics. They're, these things are, are difficult, but if you've been shown it's not that bad. Let me give you a simple case. Then you'll see, oh yeah, I know what that is. I'll skip this section because I hate it, but I will you know, be able to understand it when I go back. Um, so the problem is 
it has to do with kind of a specialization. So again, going back to quantum mechanics, I had a sabbatical a few years ago, looking forward to my next one. I decided I'm going to really learn the quantum mechanics I don't know. I had a kind of journeyman's appreciation. I'm going to read books. And so I, I got this book and uh, I thought it was going to be a short, short book, but it, it turned out to be very long. I started out with, you know, quantum mechanics for the mathematician. So I was shocked that that was way too hard. It's a, it's a lofty like, title. <laughs> way too hard. I thought it would be perfect for me, but the first chapter was great. After that, I was lost. And I tried various things. Finally, I got quantum mechanics for the engineer. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> how far have I fallen? How, uh, how much better was it? How much better was that? Well, also, how, how many steps above quantum mechanics for dummies? <laughs> well, actually, my favorite book is one called Quantum Mechanics for Computer Scientists by Noam Yanofsky. It's a great book. I highly recommend that. But this one was pretty good. So I asked a friend of mine who I call a quantum mechanic, quantum information theory guy, great guy. We're, we're chatting online. I said, what do you think of this book? He said, let me take a look. And I'd gotten a version from like 2011, and it was pretty long, 600 pages. And this fellow, he's, uh, he's got a very, when he talks academic, he has a very, very nice uh, Oxbridge accent, right? And he looked at it, he looked at me and said, he says, good God, man, is this really 2,000 pages? Because the 2014 version was much longer, so he covered everything. Anyhow, when he does spherical harmonics, he says, here they are, look at table one. Frankly, it's a mess. No one likes it that's not a physicist, but we have to understand it. So just bear with me for the next three pages. That's how he introduces it. So I think this inoculation thing is a real way of not being intimidated in some sense and, and understanding it. So I, I think that we could be successful at having people hear all these terms from immunology and molecular biology and so forth and realize, okay, I, I realize I could look that up or I've seen it before um, and I, I could get into it. So we're trying to sort of, you know, even the person who's not going to do computational work from the biological side, even the, even the person from the computational side who's not going to have a wet lab, they could have a student or a postdoc in that area and be able to communicate with them. They could build out into that area without being terrified. Because I think it's really hard to go in from a background of not being exposed to it and try to make headway. So for example, sometimes we've had people that were very famous theoreticians go into computational biology and be very successful actually. But then to give a talk on what did I learn? I said, well, I worked in theoretical computer science. And then what I learned was that in biology, uncertainty and error are important. And it's important to actually code your programs up and test them on real data. So all these things that are natural to an engineer, right? I mean, good guy, right, you took I, five I years. Say, that's quite obvious. <laughs> but, but the thing is that to become the top person in theoretical computer science, a field that I love, right? They had specialized their entire life without having to do any of those things, right? They don't have to consider uncertainty. They don't have to consider error. They don't have to write programs, test them on data. That doesn't come up in that, in that area of structural complexity, but they had to learn that to go into this area. So the fact that we have students like you all for whom this kind of stuff is natural, now we're trying to make it so that when someone talks about you know, immunology or protein expression and purification. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that and, and, and you can know about it. So I think it serves a role in that sense. You know, when you're sort of walking the line or you're involved in both theory, you know, theoretical stuff and more practical stuff, is there one or the other that you find yourself enjoying more at times or you sort of enjoy like a mix of both? I think it varies. It depends on, kind of how the projects are going and what's needed. 
Um, you know, there, there are times when the theory work is going well and it's being driven by things students are working on. They might've, you know, I can talk with them once a week, but then I'll hang out with the people in the wet lab to see what they're doing, talk with them. Uh, at the moment, I'm in the fortunate situation, I suppose, where the people in the wet lab are very sophisticated, like their experimental capabilities are quite a bit beyond my own and we have collaborators. So I do meet with them, um, but largely we talk at a conceptual level uh, and the interface to computation. Uh, we also have years of data and models that need thinking about. So I've been kind of thinking more on the theory side the last few years myself. Um, and I tend to spend most of my time sort of there. So I, I would say that uh, I tend to be very involved in the theory parts the last few years, and also in kind of forming the collaborations where we'll apply it. But then the details of what it takes to be a good designer, like how do you design molecules, or to be a good experimentalist to you know, test things out, those are so involved in some sense that um, often I'm kind of looking over people's shoulders for how that works. I have some, you know, knowledge to guide them in the design world, at least, or even experimental world, but also depends on the area. I'd say with NMR, I have a decent background and I can be very involved, but there are other areas like designing fluorescence assays or protein purification expression where they have years of training. I mean, I have people that come into the lab with already eight years at the bench. Um, and so they're going to be a lot better at, uh, you know, debugging the expression, purification, and characterization of these systems in some sense. So on the other hand, it's more of a collaboration. I think they like that. So I think one of the reasons that um, they might like working in the lab is they get some control over their project and how it goes and how it's formulated. Um, so I think it varies depending on what projects are going. As uh, Good friend of mine who, a uh, very distinguished scientist said, it's great to have several projects in the lab because when one of them is tanking, you can work on the others and still feel some satisfaction. That's great. Uh, so as you wrap up, there are two kind of rapid fire questions we like to ask our guests. The first one is about books. If, what was the last book you read? And if you have any uh, book recommendations, I know you recommended a few uh, referring to quantum mechanics, but um, just in general about uh, computer science, biology, life, uh, any, any book favorites? Um, the last book I finished was by Amor Towels. It's called A Gentleman in Moscow. Um, very, very interesting book. Uh, it's about a person at the beginning of the Russian Revolution who is declared a non-person and confined to a hotel, kind of house arrest, and lives out most of his life there. Um, for like 30 years under the kind of, uh, uh, you know, as the Soviet system evolves. Um, also very well written. I'm in the middle of two books, one of which I mentioned, the Yanovsky book. Um, but another one, which I, well, there are, two, there are two that I just finished that I really like that are more on the technical side. Uh, there is uh, the, um, his other book, which is called Monoidal Categories. So it's a gentle introduction to uh, uh, kind of category theory for the working, working computer scientist, uh, maybe working mathematician in some sense. And uh, 
Then I also got interested in, I'll just list one more. Um, so my younger daughter is at Barnard at, and taking math classes at Columbia, she's a math minor, and has been taking all sorts of interesting classes there. So the kind of equivalent class to my class CS230 is taught, it has 30, 30 students in it, right? Not 230. And uh, it's also taught by a fellow of the Royal Society, Dusan McDuff, um, who's really quite a distinguished algebraic geometer. Uh, so kind of great that they have courses like that. I think Duke should have more of those too. Um, but she's married to John Milner, who won the Peels Battle. And he has this lot of interesting things, but he has this wonderful book that uh, was recommended actually by Maya, my daughter's teacher, Dusa McDuff, uh, called Topology from the Differentiable Viewpoint that proves some of the deep theorems in algebraic and differential topology just from the point of view of really multivariate calculus. How hard so of a read is it compared to the uh, quantum mechanics one that you were mentioning? Oh, the quantum mechanics one is quite straightforward um, because it's designed for computer scientists. Okay. So it's basically for computer scientists. So it starts out with what's a complex number and what's a matrix and so forth. Um, so the other place it falls down a little bit is, is it describes tensors a lot because tensors are really important. So it gives a good intuition there, but I think that the tensor stuff you get from machine learning is probably a little deeper there, but everything else is really good. Um, so I recommend, I think these books are, books are great. And that's sort of a mix of a uh, mix of a uh, pleasure reading and mathematical reading. And the other rapid fire question, what are your tea or coffee habits? Tea or coffee habits, interesting. Um, <laughs> so historically I've always liked coffee and tea. Um, so when I was a grad student, they had a wonderful Italian Carina espresso machine. You had to be trained to use it. Only one guy would train you. And it was right down the hall and my office mate and I had a lot of coffee. So starting then and going through my time as assistant professor, I ramped up to maybe 10 or 12 espressos a day. So it's very funny. It's like it's like you're someone getting trained on a microscope, getting trained on the coffee machine. You know, it was complicated. <laughs> yeah, it was good. So I I, I would uh, drink a lot of coffee. Very productive. Um, but I, ultimately, I think it wasn't so good for me. So I went ten to turkey. twelve espressos is not trivial. <laughs> it was not. It was not. Um, I got my own espresso machine. My office mate actually gave it to me when I graduated. I took it to Cornell when I went there. A small one, of course. Uh, so it wasn't trivial and I think it wasn't so good for me. So I went cold turkey at one point, which was really hard. It's the, it's extremely addictive drug. Uh, and at the time I talked to other friends about it because it was like the biggest life event at the time, which was, oh my God, this thing is happening to me. I'm giving up this drug that I like. Um, so I had a friend who had a different strategy. And what he would do, he was a professor at MIT, young guy. And he said, what I do is I go cold turkey every six months. I'm like, what? How would you ever do this again in your life? He says, no. The point is when you start up again, you start with a small amount. And for the next six months, you gradually increase your dosage. So you start out with one espresso. And by the end of six months, you're drinking 12. So since you're always increasing, you're always happy. And then you go cold turkey and you stop it. So what this does is it's a probabilistic algorithm. It guarantees that you're happy at least 50% of the time. And what other life hack can you do that would possibly guarantee happiness 50% of the time? I, you know, that's, that's a good algorithm. And that's when I really got kind of interested in the possibility of the algorithmic approach influencing all parts of one's life. 
But now what I have, I have tea, strong tea in the morning uh, when I get up. And then during the day, except for exceptional circumstances, I have either decaf tea or decaf espresso, which has a little bit of caffeine, but you know, small amount. Um, and I'm drinking decaf tea now. So there we go. But caffeine in the morning for sure. That's awesome. We have a lot of a lot of advice for our listeners, not just on the uh, structural biology side, but on the coffee and tea side too. They, that's just someone should definitely try it out. <laughs> one more caffeine thing. I think this is this is one thing that I learned when I sort of, if you will, became an experimentalist. So I was very also interested in coffee when I was in high school, and we had family friends who were doctors, and like most physicians, they had had some scientific training, and these were also interesting people. And so I would ask them, well, what has more caffeine, tea or coffee? And he's like, oh, it depends how you make it and so forth. He says, no, but can you give me a quantitative answer? You probably have thought about this too, right? Different kinds of tea, green tea, different kinds of teas, different places. So what he said was this, and by the way, put a star next to this because this is not correct, but I believed it for a long time. You could find this, which is, well, you know, tannic acid binds caffeine. So tannic acid levels, concentration rises over time. So if you make the tea and let it sit around, the tannic acid will bind the caffeine. You'll have less caffeine available to the body. So you get quite a bit if you make it hot and drink it right away in you know, four or five minutes. But if you let it sit around all day, let the tea bag sit in there, the tannic acid will essentially bind the caffeine you won't have it. So I was like, oh, that's very plausible. And I thought about this, but it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. For example, iced tea, which sits around all the time, seemed to have quite a bit of caffeine sometimes. And I couldn't quite figure out whether this is really true, but I sort of believed it. And then I was kind of interested in, I'm always interested in what my students have learned before coming because I have to you know, teach them all these other things. So many of them take in organic chemistry. So organic chemistry, you do this experiment where you measure the amount of caffeine in something by tannic acid binding readout. This is a classic lab in organic chemistry. You probably I did this. it like it was yesterday. <laughs> right, so that's how, you, that's how you measure the readout. So of course he's a medical doctor. He's at Harvard in practice. And he remembered his organic chemistry. He's always related things back to the things he learned, except that that's kind of all they learn. They learn that and then biochemistry, and then they're on to something else. So it's a great readout. And there is tannic acid, but it doesn't mean it's neutralizing the caffeine. It's in fast exchange, right? So there is some interaction there. So basically what he was doing is he was taking what he learned as a freshman or first year or sophomore and extrapolating to the in vivo performance of caffeine and actually expounding and telling people that it worked that way. So there's, uh, what we can learn from that, a little knowledge can be really dangerous, but if you really dig deeply into these experiments, there will be a kind of contrarian way of thinking about it. So now we know that that was just an assay and not actually how it works. So um, it's, there's a whole science of caffeine, in other words, that one can look at. And Absolutely. maybe getting deeply into how it actually works can lead you, prevent you from going down some paths that would be uh, the wrong ones. This is by far and away the most detailed coffee and tea answer we have ever heard. <laughs> That's interesting. So do you think there's like a more efficient, there's an algorithm that guarantees, that could guarantee even more satisfaction than 50% of the time? Or is that probably the, the asymptotic limit right there? Well, like a lot of things, it was anecdotal, right? He just on this one experiment. So, um, but I think that, uh, okay, we could really nerd out. I think it really relates to, <laughs> to online algorithms. Is this a thing you've studied? I haven't personally had much experience studying it, but I'm, I'm very curious to listen. Right, so the, uh, what I'd say is that um, 
So the canonical problem is you come to a river and you need to cross it, you can only cross it on the bridge. Um, so if you, you wanna cross this river and uh, the river runs north-south. So how do you search for the bridge? You don't know which way it is. So you're gonna obviously, you're not gonna just go north and the 50% chance of going north, right? That's bad. So you wanna eventually find the bridge. So you wanna also traverse the least amount of time on the bank. So you're gonna go back and forth in some pattern. So now you're an engineer or computer scientist, you know it's gonna be some sequence. It could be a geometric sequence, arithmetic sequence, Fibonacci sequence, Ackerman sequence. What sequence is it gonna be? So it turns out Fibonacci sequence is gonna minimize your expected time on the bank, right? Going back and forth. So you traverse this thing in a Fibonacci sequence and you're gonna, um, if I remember correctly. So that's, that's the, so an online algorithm is one where you don't know the future. The uh, two-dimensional version is you can, you, you're in Paris, but you don't have a street map. You can only see locally, but you can see the Eiffel Tower. You wanna to get to the Eiffel Tower. You know where you're going. So how do you, how do you traverse it? So these online algorithms are ways of doing it. So I suspect that there's a interleaving, as you're saying, that's some sequence. And it might not be this square wave thing. In fact, more generally, um, it, the, it wouldn't have to be a, a, a uniform distribution or a square wave, right? Why, why stop? Like maybe there's some curve. Um, all right, so this is a crazy assertion, but here's evidence for it. Um, so there's a classic problem in uh, kind of calculus, which is, okay, if you have a, um, you know, if you have a circular wheel, then the road should be flat. Right? And if it's going on a flat road, the axle will, you know, it will roll on. It's, it's, the axle will roll in a straight, go in a straight line. The position of the axle, that's what, a, that's what a wheel is. So now suppose that we have an ellipsoidal wheel. Obviously the parameters are given by the eccentricity of the ellipse. Um, but you want the axle still to traverse a straight line, right, horizontal line. What should the shape of the road be? So this is an interesting integral that one can work out. It turns out to be, I think, a vessel function or something. So it's, you can kind of characterize it. So it's kind of some, obviously it's some kind of sinusoidal thing, right? That you can make some kind of sinusoidal thing. It's quite, a, quite an interesting problem to solve. Um, so this is this really bizarre thing, but it, there's an optimal shape for it. It turns out that this exercise is really useful if you want to make things that sit in the ocean and generate energy from the waves. So you can design these ellipsoids that expand or contract based on the period and length of the waves, and they can optimally sit in a bay where the waves are coming in and harness tidal energy. So connection between mathematics. But basically the issue is that there might be uh, uh, some kind of continuous distribution that was optimal for happiness. I think the problem here is measuring happiness. So his only measure sure. was that you're gradually increasing caffeine. This is a rather indirect readout of happiness from my experience. Well, I look forward to your next paper on this uh, subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll target that for the Journal of Irreproducible Results. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Donald, for joining us. It was a really I, great conversation. <laughs> enjoyed talking with you all. Thank you for including me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I love that tangent at the end there, <laughs> designing an optimal algorithm to optimize happiness while drinking coffee. Hey, if it's possible, I want in. <laughs> yeah, I think that just goes to show that Dr. Donald's mind is just always thinking and working and he's just thinking about something. <laughs>
at any given time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I thought this conversation was really, really interesting, covering a lot of different topics um, and seeing how those topics interplay with each other, which was really cool. So I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I really hope you enjoyed. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Spotify at After Office Hours, as well as on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And as always, you can check us out on the Instagram at after double underscore office hours. And on LinkedIn. I don't know if you mentioned that or if I wasn't paying attention. But you can check us out on LinkedIn if by searching after office hours, give our page a follow. Uh, you can stay up to date on all of our newest conversations and all of our other exciting content that we will be putting out as well. And one more exciting announcement. We are moving on to YouTube. So if you guys... Um, are more visual people and you want to see our conversations in addition to hearing them you can search after office hours on youtube and check out our page there